What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Jamie Forbes. Instead of coming into a conversation with an agenda of information you want to provide, go into a conversation with the agenda of extracting information or really just asking questions. And they can be big picture questions or they can be very specific questions. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Jamie, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Jamie, tell us a little bit about Opus Advisors. Opus Advisors is a management consulting group. We have two different divisions. We do philanthropy advising for individuals, their families, and also for businesses to help them get the most from their giving. And we also work with nonprofit organizations uh, to help them maximize the impact of, of their work. Uh, so a lot of that work is fundraising, but we also do strategic planning and marketing and communication. You know, I know that in your in your Fortune 500 life, the uh, you helped build a, 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 a unit in a coffee brand that is now a three hundred million dollar plus business unit, and you had some some big successes over there. Um, you in your Opus life, you've helped startups that have uh, raised over ten million dollars for their nonprofit. Um, but uh, before we get all that started, um, do you want to tell your, your family story about giving back and, and the vacation that turned into the family project? Sure. Um, so I jokingly refer to this as accidental philanthropy because uh, it started out as, um, as really just a family vacation that my wife and I took. Um, and we brought our young kids along uh, uh, with us. They were, they were three and six at the time. And we brought along a bunch of books and school supplies to keep them entertained while we were while we were traveling down in the Caribbean on this beautiful island called Dominica. And our kids, as as kids do, make uh, they made some friends with local kids on, on the beach as they were playing. And our, our kids realized that uh, uh, you know their friends really were intrigued by their books and school supplies and. 
and realized by the end of the trip that that the friends didn't have any school supplies. They didn't have any books of their own. And so they asked us as we were leaving, can we leave these books with, with our friends? And we said, absolutely. What a great idea. And then the next year, we, we had such a great time, we decided to go back. And because we knew there was a, there was a need for, for books, we, we filled a couple of duffel bags with books and school supplies and then um, decided to go, go visit the school where our friends uh, had been going to school and met the principal and got a tour of the school. And during that tour, she said, uh, here's, here's, you know, one space that, uh, you know, I wish were a little bit different. And she opened it up and it was, uh, it was a classroom, but it was filled with, you know, essentially just junk storage. And she said, you know, someday I hope to build a library here. And we thought, well, that, you know, that would be great. And, um, and then the more we talked with her, the more we, we realized, well, maybe we can help with that. And that really became the, the beginning of oh, what was an eight-year uh, eight adventure for us as a family to raise, uh, to just get donated books from our community up here. Our kids talked to their, their, um, you know, their classmates, posted uh, signs around town, and books just started showing up on our doorstep uh, in boxes, and we would ship them down to Dominica, and um, and over uh, an eight-year period, we shipped more than fifty uh, big fifty-gallon drums of of books and school supplies, and hired a local carpenter to uh, build bookshelves. And uh, what it, and you know, once those bookshelves were built, we. We moved them in, and um, and suddenly we had uh, a real library for the school, and it was just an incredible experience for our kids to see that you know you don't have to write a big check in order to have a great impact, and for us as parents to see our kids really excited about being able to help their friends, um, and certainly for us, you know, it was just a great project that um, we felt great pride for and and loved. You know, just seeing how we were um, really helping a community that we loved dearly. So that was our, uh, you know, I guess my first experience with uh, what I call engaged philanthropy. But, it, it, you know, it started out really as a vacation. I like that story. I think that especially for those of us who have been in management, management positions, um, it's easy to look at situations like that and treat it like any other project. And uh, I remember when you were telling me that story earlier, thinking like, I, I almost kind of had the vicarious feeling of like, because you actually knew the people that you were helping, there's like, there's like an extra something to it for a project like that. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it certainly, you know, there were, there were real faces to the, um, to the work for us. And we were, uh, we were going down uh, every year to this place that we loved and, you know, loved it for its beauty and for its people. And, and our kids ultimately were going to school. Actually, we stayed for three and four weeks at a time at a, at, at a time when we were able to do that with our kids. And, um, and our kids actually went to class at the school. So they really, you know, got a sense of, um, of the impact that they were having. That's great. Well, um, I think today we'll jump around a bit between your consulting experience and your corporate experience. Um, 
starting on the consulting side, um, do you mind talking about the the nonprofit group you guys helped right from inception and helping them build their capital campaign and, and who have now ultimately raised over $10 million? Sure. So this is a local arts and cultural organization. Um, the founder had a really innovative uh, vision for an organization that that had both a, um, a performing space, an art gallery, and a farm-to-table restaurant all in the same space. Uh, and uh, when when we were hired by the the organization, they were brand new board, um, and by design they decided to use many board members who were. Um, relatively young entrepreneurs and, and people who were not necessarily experienced as board members. So there was a great enthusiasm for the concept, um, but there was also a lot, of, um, um, a lot of work that we needed to do to help, uh, help build the board and get them in a place where they could effectively fundraise because many, uh, many of them didn't have fundraising experience. And um, and so we we worked with the team to create uh, identify the location and create the case for support and uh, and really support the board in their fundraising efforts and uh, and work with them uh, ultimately um, uh, you know built the foundation for the fundraising campaign and and now um, we're actually no longer. Uh, working with them, they have their, you know, they really built enough momentum and expertise internally to be able to keep uh, doing that on their own without, without our support. So they've, they've uh, now to date raised over $10 million, um, have moved into their new space. It's an incredible place um, that has really added a, a vibrancy to the community that's really pretty special. Um, and when you talk about supporting the design of that fundraising campaign, for someone like you, I mean, I think there's, uh, there's a lot you take for granted. For, for the rest of us who don't know exactly how that's always done, what, what specifics are involved there that maybe when people who aren't from the space start things, um, they don't realize, you know, here's a tweak that usually works well? Or can you think of any specifics that you helped when you were supporting that? Um, you mean specifically from a capital campaign fundraising standpoint? Yeah. Was there, like, what, what strategies ended up working for you guys? Or Well, uh, you know, a lot of it is, um, is fairly standard project management, blocking and tackling. Um, so, um, you know, we obviously needed to have a development plan in place. We needed to make sure that there was the infrastructure to, you know, we needed a a CRM database to make sure we we knew who we were talking to, we knew who spoke to them last and what their response was and that we were thanking donors appropriately. That's all pretty basic uh, stuff, the tools of the trade that are, that are part of um, doing uh, fundraising effectively. But one of the other pieces that was relatively unique for, these, uh, for this organization was um, that because they were uh, focused on being a arts organization with some entertainment uh, elements to it, they were actually able to partner with other um, arts organizations throughout the community to co-present before they ever opened their doors. So they were able to actually build um, 
some goodwill in the community and some awareness um, for their brand before or, uh, before they actually had their own space, which was a great, great way to support the fundraising efforts and um, and a great way for them to actually start um, earning revenue before before the doors were open. That's great. And and when you talk about who's talking to who and these kind of things, was it was it much more of a a one-on-one, somebody shows up with a deck and talks to someone that they had a relationship with, or were there more like gala-type events, or how did they get it started? Uh, it was a combination of, uh, of both, but you know, certainly in different, uh, depending on the level of donor, um, those relationships are, are treated differently. You need, it's important really to have um, you know, smaller more intimate gatherings for for the uh, major gift uh, prospects, and at the same time, there are plenty of people in the community that you know may only be able to write a hundred dollar check or or less for that matter. Who you want to make sure to engage as well, and that's where the beauty of um, having those events were because people could participate at whatever level. Um, they were comfortable with whether they were a major donor and they were interested in hearing hearing great music and by the way having a side relationship that enabled you know some some larger dollars to be raised uh, it was a great you know it, it's really important to have uh, different different ways for donors to participate sure um, when you think about advice for, like, if there's any social entrepreneurs listening today or nonprofit leaders listening today, um, in your opinion, when it comes to approaching those uh, people who can make the major gifts, um, do you guys, do you have a thought? Do you recommend a cold call? Do you recommend a letter followed by a call? Do you recommend, you know, for, for someone that they maybe don't have the relationship already, but they do have reason to believe they could be, you know, in a financial position to contribute in a larger way? Can you ask me that question again? Yeah. Do you do you have a mode that you recommend as far as contacting someone that could be a large donor where you don't have a pre-existing relationship? Do you recommend sending a letter first followed by a phone call? Do you do you have different strategies? Well, you know, relationships are so important, and typically the best way to um, to to bring a uh, at least a major donor prospect or any prospect for that matter is through someone else. So we always work hard to identify where the relationship is, where there is a relationship, even if it's, um, you know, not a, not a deep friendship, but just an acquaintance. Um, you know, we work with our, with our clients to understand the value of their own personal networks and how, um, how to leverage those networks to um, connect with with people who may have an interest in supporting the organization. Talking about the corporate side for a minute, can you talk a little bit about the the iterations and the the innovation um, rolling out the coffee culotta and kind of recognizing the success Starbucks was having with Frappuccinos and how you guys uh, were were going for the quick follow and Roblox you had there and how you made it eventually. Sure. So. We decided. We looked at the success that that Starbucks was having with their Frappuccino product, and decided that we um, 
you know, we should get in on the game. And, um, and yet the, the product itself uh, that, that Starbucks was making, you know, was not, uh, was not a great match for, for Duncan because Duncan is, uh, Duncan customers are used to really quick, um, quick service. And so we had to find a way to um, supply a really high quality product in, in as fast a way as we could. And, and we stumbled along the way. I mean, there were definitely times where we thought, we're not going to be able to make this work. Um, and it was primarily around speed of service. But my role was to uh, manage the, the development and launch of the product. So I worked with the product development folks, and then I also uh, worked with the field folks. So the product development folks were formulating the product and, uh, and figuring out the right equipment, and the, the field uh, operations folks were working with the franchisees and making sure that um, you know, the customer experience was as good as it could be. And um, as I said, there were definitely some times along the way that we thought, oh, man, you know, <clears throat> this is not, not going to work. Whether it was whether it was you know the product just didn't taste as good as we wanted it to, or customers wanted it to, or it um, it wasn't being made fast enough, and it was really just causing an operational nightmare in the um, in the shop. Um, but ultimately, when we um, when we found the right equipment that enabled us to serve the product as quickly as the cust- customers wanted it. It was a really quick success. Well, it's interesting. You know, we talked about how it's always sexy to, to say you were the first to invent something or the first to be somewhere. But really, from a financial standpoint, you know, being the first to be second, a lot of times can be very profitable or, or even more profitable. Um, and so when you think about this idea of, of pattern recognition, seeing what's working and emulating what you can, um, I think it does talk, you know, kind of prove the point that you can't be blind emulation, right? That you've, it, you know, just because it's working for someone else doesn't mean it's not going to need iterations for, for our own businesses, right? That's right. Um, well, listen, uh, let's talk about skill sets and, and achieving mastery at different things. You know, when we were talking and, you know, you talked about managing $85 million in sales over these 175 franchisees and, and things that helped it become the highest territory sales growth for six consecutive years. Um, you were you talking about uh, kind of knowing what you were good at and doubling down on that instead of doing everything yourself. Um, and as we were talking about the people skills and the ability to really connect with these franchisees, um, for, for people who aren't as familiar with the franchise business, can you talk about why sometimes there's tension between corporate and a franchisee? Well, in the franchise business, there is the the owner of the you know the, the franchise model, whether it's food or uh, some other service, and um, you know there's a very specific business uh, process that the franchisor wants the franchisee to to uh, follow, and the franchisee typically is um, entrepreneurial to an extent, but really just you know generally hard workers, um, and they're, they they want to buy or rent um, a business model, a proven business model. And, um, and, 
And so, but within the proven business model that the franchisor typically provides, there is room for either innovation or um, modification. And so, uh, of course, the franchisor wants to minimize any innovation because they have a model that they think works. And the franchisee says, well, you know, they may have a model that works, but this one works too. And in fact, maybe it's faster or less expensive. And so there's a tension between the franchisor and the franchisee. And, you know, it's sort of also a little bit of a parent-child relationship if you look at it from, from that standpoint. Um, uh, so sometimes um, the franchisors uh, and the franchisees are, can be at odds at times um, depending on how successful the business is. The, you know, obviously business cycles can impact those relationships as well. Sure. Um, when you think about what you feel like made the difference for this, you know, six consecutive years of highest territory sales growth. Um, tell us a bit about, about your strategy and why you think it worked. Uh, I'd love to say that, that it was a, it was a really um, well thought out strategy. I think <laughs> it was more of, uh, it was more of just kind of working with the tools uh, that I had and that, you know, sort of my own inherent um, capabilities. But, but one of the things that I think was really important was just really understanding the franchisees and building a relationship with them so that they trusted me. Uh, because what I saw was that, you know, if you don't have a really good relationship with your franchisees, it's going to be really hard to sell your marketing plan to them, to get them to uh, agree to implement your marketing plan. And so I spent a lot of time really understanding and building relationships with with franchisees and um, meeting their family and working in shops and getting to know the people who who were you know on the front line of the the business and that enabled me to really develop an appreciation for uh, you know how to work with them and the the kinds of things that were important to them and so ultimately when I you know, when I uh, was was presenting a marketing plan, uh, they knew that I wasn't just turning around and presenting everything that the company wanted them to present. I certainly did present a lot of that, but I had some room for leeway in um, being creative with how that's applied. And uh, that enabled me um, to, I, to, I think, create marketing programs that, that franchisees were behind 100% and they were therefore more, uh, you know, more engaged in their, the success of the program because they didn't feel it was being crammed down their throat. They felt like, okay, now I have a, a hand in, in this plan and, um, and I know that you know, Jamie wants the best for me. You know, it, it's so interesting um how what you're saying doesn't sound like rocket science, right? Right, um, not at all. But, but yet so many of us, whether it comes to managing our clients or managing our staff, um, you know, it, it just seems like so much work to get that level of immersion in their world. And we already have our own to-dos list. Um, right. And it's, it's almost like the, you know, the urgent versus the important kind of issue. <laughs> Right, we've got this urgent to-do list a lot, um, and 
you know, I think I've suffered from something most of us have who who have had staff before where sometimes we get this attitude of, well, I'm paying you, so you owe me to do what I want you to do. Right. Um, and yet, you know, we were talking earlier about no matter what business you're in, you're in the people business too. Um, sure. What, what if, you know, if more of us treated our staff the way that you treated those franchisees, you know, how, how would that likely affect performance, right? Mm, absolutely. And it actually, you know, while I was in that role for, for several years, it didn't take that long to develop that, those relationships. Um, you know, they certainly grew over time. But what I found was just showing a real genuine interest in people and understanding what uh, their perspective is goes a long way to building that level of trust. And you can build on that, you know, through multiple interactions. But if, you know, if it comes from a place of genuine interest, um, it's, it's fairly transparent. And, and that has long-lasting implications in, you know, how you can get things done. You know, it's interesting because especially, you know, I feel like even when I was running companies, I was still in sales, you know, so I feel like I've been in sales for 20 years. And, um, you know, there's those kind of questions being interested in people where you can say you're interested, but it's almost like, it's almost like the politician questions. Oh, how many kids do you have? What are your interests? You know, right. where you're like checking the list of, did I ask the right questions? Um, but do you, I, I have something to add, but do you have any, uh, tricks or things you help yourself, um, to get in the mindset of, of being genuinely interested in someone that you don't know yet? Uh, <clears throat> well, I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't call it a trick other than just um, trying to, instead of coming into a conversation with an agenda of information you, you want to provide, you go into a conversation with the agenda of extracting information or really just asking questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can be big picture questions, but, uh, or, or they can be very specific questions. But, but um, I think coming in with a genuine level of interest uh, just makes people feel very different than when you're coming in and trying to convey information as either the expert or uh, uh, you know, someone... Uh, you know, it gets you out of that power relationship and into more of uh, just a relationship. Yeah. A, gen- a genuine relationship. And I think that creates a completely different dynamic. Yeah, I'd agree. You know, I know for myself, I, I, I really like you, you bringing up that word agenda. I think when I show up with too much of an agenda, you know, I have a time limit on how much small talk I'm willing to do, you know, right. and... And there's like a, almost like a tension to get through the small talk, right? Or um, when, I, when I show up and I've like predetermined what the situation is, I end up not being as alive to like the person I'm in front of, like letting the conversation go in an in a organic way because I, my agenda is trying to steer the conversation so hard that it stops feeling as natural. Absolutely. Um, well, um, Let's talk a little bit too. Um, you know, we, we're having the conversation. You know, talking on the consulting side and, and the the work that you do now. Um, how you have an ancestor that you feel like kind of set an example for you as far as um, giving and and uh, the 
Why don't we talk about the family island? <laughs> well, so the, you know, my family ancestry goes, as, as it does for all of us, back many generations, but um, my family keeps track, really, of uh, our ancestry because my great-great-great-grandfather was a merchant in the China trade. Um, and between the early 1800s and middle of the 1800s um, was quite successful, both as a merchant in the China trade and then when he came back from China, uh, investing in major infrastructure projects that were going on at the time, and railroads and telephones were among those, and was uh, certainly in the right place at the right time and um, and had the resources to be able to invest. And, um, and with... Uh, with some of that wealth, um, bought a piece of property that's still in the family today that is really, uh, you know, uh, central to uh, my own identity as, as a kid. Uh, you know, having grown up in a place that I knew my, my dad and my grandfather and his father before him swam in the, in the same, same places and... Uh, uh, and I don't know if you're hearing this. I'm sorry. I've got some background noise. Um, so, you know, swam in the same swimming holes and uh, fished, fished from the same bridges and walked on the same paths and, um, you know, and, and had, our, had a role in, in clearing those paths and, and a responsibility to clear those paths and maintain the, maintain the landscape and, and really stewarding the land. That... Um, became a really powerful source of uh, learning some life skills in addition to the sense of uh, appreciation for for the land, really understanding the importance of, well, if, you know, this is a place we all love, we need to not only maintain it, but we need to be able to get along so that we can, um, so it will, uh, this place will, will sustain itself through the years. And so it really gave me a deep appreciation for more than just the real estate, but also um, how do you create sustainable communities and how do you, um, how, how do you, how do you make sure large groups of people who may not all um, uh, have the same uh, financial capacity, the same uh, the same interests, the same um, the same standards. Uh, how do you how do you how do you sustain a place? You know, given all of those different dynamics. And um, well, it sure seems that yeah, a testament of his forethought that you know that governance system he set up has been able to last and evolve. Didn't you say it's almost 150 years now? That that yeah, since the since the 1850s. You know, that's incredible to you know that. The governance he set up back then has been able to stand that test of time. That's right, and and it's actually uh, through an appreciation of uh, you know and a recognition of kind of the magic of, of that uh, really inspired me to do a lot of the philanthropy advising work that I do. And in fact, one of the sort of subspecialties that I um, that I do with families is uh, work with families who have a shared. Uh, shared real estate and um, helping them 
figure out whether or not there is an opportunity to create something sustainable for the long term. Because of my experience and, and love uh, and appreciation for the place that, that I grew up, recognizing how powerful that can be in, in people's lives. You know, um, it is interesting talking to folks who have become wealthy and, and you know, concerns that they, they didn't have early on, they have of like, how do I not spoil my kids? And how do I, you know, how do I have this wealth be a positive thing in their life, not a negative thing ultimately in their life? And what about the grandkids? And, um, you know, it really weighs on people if, Abs- if they absolutely. really make it. And that, that's actually another... Uh, you know, another reason that I felt really compelled to doing this work, um, you know, I saw both within my family and many of the, you know, many of the people that I grew, grew up with um, had great financial opportunity and yet not necessarily very good mentoring. And, um, and that really changed a lot of people's lives um, in a way that wasn't very positive. And I wanted to avoid that, both for my own family and, and, you know, really felt compelled to help other families with wrestling with some of those issues. Yeah. um, I remember a gentleman giving me some advice. His his car dealerships did a a little over a billion dollars a year in sales. And he had a, you know, they had a private airplane that um, they kind of treated like the suburban, family suburban. They take off from California and go skiing in Utah for the day and stop for dinner in Vegas and, and come home kind of thing. And he talked, I remember him talking to me about reading books like the silver spoon kids and like thinking about, you know, how could he enjoy some of these benefits, but not ruin his own kids. And, and, uh, how, even though he owns car dealerships, like his kids have to buy, have to drive whatever car they can pay for from their job from McDonald's and like, like, you know, just doing things very intentionally. Right. Um, so important. Well, um, in this work, um, that you do, uh, advising companies, advising high net worth families also, um, what, what are some other, um, maybe, maybe principles that you could teach the rest of us when it comes to, say, a capital campaign? What, what are some of the things that um, you guys are typically, you know, someone who's maybe newer to the game or someone whose capital campaigns aren't as effective? What, what are some of the things that you're consistently having to teach people of, like, here's a principle that's really going to help your nonprofit raise more money? Well, you know, much like in the private sector, having a plan is so important. Um, you know, in the case of fundraising, you need to have a, you need to have a development plan. And it needs to, and you need to have the capacity to execute it, the capacity and the and the tools. So you know, real clear uh, parallels to to really any any operation. But unfortunately, the the nonprofit sector is sort of perennially um, strapped for cash and tends to have fewer resources and therefore more people who are doing multiple jobs, sometimes outside of what they're really good at, um, although not always, certainly. And, and so, you know, a lot of what we do is go in and, and assess organizations before we start working with them, just so that we really know what their internal capacity is. But I would say, you know, as much as anything, you need a plan. 
and you need to identify the resources that you need to be able to execute the plan effectively. And particularly when it comes to fundraising, um, you need a compelling story. Why are you raising the money? And every individual who is involved in the fundraising process needs to really understand what their own story is and why they are connected to the, uh, to the project. Because the more connected we all are to a project, the more compelling um, we can speak about it. We can be when we speak about it. So, so really it's about making sure you've got the plan, you've got the resources to execute the plan and um, and then you know you're you're uh, you're talking about it in a way that's compelling to people yeah you know, I think that's such a important point um, I know one of the one of the CEOs that I advise right now um, helping helping expand the the sales training program in her company and we talk about this idea of like you know especially on a sales team like going through the motions versus like really being an evangelist for the cause, you know, like right. my friend, who used to work at, at FedEx, you know, I guess guys over there would ask each other, do you bleed purple? You know, like, <laughs> are, are you a FedExer for life kind of thing? Right. And, uh, it seems like those people who really, you know, they've got it in the bones that that's when it becomes contagious. Right. And, um, I could see an advantage for people, you know, any of their team that's that's going to be facing potential donors or potential clients in the for-profit scenario, like, you know, the value of maybe management sitting down with them and, and articulating and helping them get clarity on their own story of, you know, right. why are they evangel- an evangelist for, for what they're supposed to go out and influence other people towards, right? That, that's right. It's not just the organization story and the compelling story for whatever mission they're, they're going after, but... It's what is everyone involved needs to understand why they are connected to that mission, because without that connection, it's um, it's hard to really talk about it in a compelling way. Yeah. Well, um, do you have any books that you think innovators or leaders should be reading these days that that really stand out to you? Huh. Uh, you know, it's funny. I. I um, I don't really like business books. It's not that <laughs> it's not that there aren't any good business books. I just tend to uh, gravitate to other books um, for for reading um, or you know reading for pleasure. So um, I would say that I uh, I'm probably not the best uh, source for for business books. Although I will say, Good to Great, you know, was a book that I have read several times, and I think there's some there's a lot of wisdom in it mm. mostly because for me it's about just realizing what you're good at and sticking with that and i think that's an important message it's that a lot of people myself included uh you know it took me a long time to really uh, be comfortable allow myself really to focus on the things that i'm good at instead of feel like oh well that comes too easily to me and i'm going to you know find something else to do that is a little harder because that feels like you know what i you know, that feels like work. That's what work should be. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's almost like, uh, I think I share that feeling like sometimes there's the shoulds. Well, you should learn how to do this or you, you know, a business person or a CEO should be able to do this and this. So I told myself I need to work hard on those things instead of maybe hire someone with those capabilities. 
and double right. down on my, you know, the things that I have an aptitude for. Right. Yeah. Um, another question we'd like to ask guests is, um, if you think about whether it's early in your life or early in your career, is there anyone that stands out as really setting an example for how to treat others that comes to mind for you? Uh, you know, there are two people, both family members. One is my mother, who uh, just has always had a great way of relating to everyone, essentially. You know, I remember um, sitting in the shopping cart with my mom grocery shopping and watching her, you know, have a really sort of fun, enjoyable conversation with the woman who was ringing up the groceries. And, and, and I just, I was, it made me really proud and, and sort of made me think, oh my gosh, well, you know, she's, she's valuing the person who is, um, you know, who is, who is packing, ringing up her groceries in the same way that she values the person who, um, you know, she's been a lifelong friend with. I, I felt, you know, it was really interesting t- for me to to see that that she really just appreciated relationships and um, and and didn't really have a, a sort of a value judgment about whether or not one one job was better than another or one person was better than another. She, you know, she was really deeply curious and and, and enjoyed talking with lots of different people. And my grandfather, I would say, uh, her father, uh, was was similar in that way. Just really, um, really engaging, really interested in, um, you know, asking questions and hearing the response and kind of digging in, and um, you know, made always made me feel uh, special. You know, isn't it interesting too to think people like that? It seems like their lives are more enjoyable too for being that way. Absolutely. I think it's a lot easier to smile when you're, when you're out, you know, sort of seeking the best in people uh, than it is when you're, when you're looking for fault or, uh, you know, solving a problem. Yeah, I, I think that certainly at times in my life, I've been less aware of, you know, people like the gas station attendant, you know, or the, the person ringing up the groceries, where it's almost like, it's easy to see them just as serving the function rather than right. like fully acknowledge them as a, as a human. And, yeah. uh, I, I, uh, for me, like that grocery store one, just asking, Oh, busy day today. All of a sudden they like light up. Like it, it's the, it's the dumbest thing. I use it so often that it almost seems like cliche, but it's right. the thing that like, I find they light up and, and like, Um, I think they, I think they get so used to people not seeing them, um, Mm -hmm. that, and then as soon as they light up, then whatever they say, I react to. And it's like, um, it would seem like I'm doing something for them, but really like, it's such a benefit in my life to have like engaged, I guess. Absolutely. I think anytime you can change the script or the expected, uh, sort of call and response that we, that we often have in our lives as a default, then I think that's where you start to uh, at least have the opportunity to build relationships. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding, huh? Um, well, another guess, another uh, question we're always asking guests, we, we touched on a little bit today, but um, for our charity, Child Rescue, where we're trying to 
um, help get more people involved in rescuing children from child sex trafficking and exploitation. Uh, what advice would you have for us as far as getting the word out more, getting more people involved in that type of an issue? Well, one of the things that, that I find um, startling, concerning, um, you know, just really frightening is that, uh, that it's happening everywhere, that it's not, uh, this is not an international problem. This is not a, you know, an, it's not an issue that, that used to happen here but no longer is, is relevant. I mean, it, it, sex trafficking, child trafficking, it's something that happens in every community. Um, and, um, and I think the more those stories or, you know, some sort of, the more effectively we can communicate those stories, uh, and and make and hit them close to home. I think uh, it's easier for people to sit up and take notice, make them relatable. Talk about when it happened in their community, kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. It's um, you know there's so much in the world that needs to get fixed. I think sometimes it's easy to feel like, oh, that's a problem for over there. Yeah, and, and obviously there are some, you know, lots of privacy issues and other things that, that make it challenging to, to sort of get the word out about local stories that are maybe relevant. But, but, uh, but I do think that, you know, the more, the more you can inform people that this is, this is an issue for all of us, mm. uh, you know, and certainly the, the fact that you know, your own family's story or your wife's family's story is, is, is pretty startling. And, um, and I think for me anyway, was a really, uh, impactful way to help people understand this is, this is, you know, it's, it's an issue that, uh, I guess to a certain extent, we're all, you know, one, one handshake away from. Yeah. Well, immediately as you're saying that, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about this, the fundraising we're doing this year for the aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru, near Machu Picchu. And it's making me think, oh, you know what, maybe those uh, different individuals that are volunteering to help help us come up with the money to build the extra building there, you know, maybe whatever they do should should be two part, you know, and should include what's going on in their city and what's going on in Peru and uh, and you know, double up. Yeah, that's a great idea. And, um, and cert, I would think that also some sort of donor trip um, for those who are interested in going down and seeing how their dollars are going to be spent would be another way to, um, you know, get people to see it live and maybe provide a, an access point for them to see how it also is um, relevant locally. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, we've got a bunch of our teenagers from our our prevention campaign that's at high schools and colleges that are going down in August, and they're going to go uh, be doing some service down there for a week. And, um, you know, having the opportunity for more of the donors to go down and actually do some service and meet the kids. And, and plus, the kids down there, you know, being able to feel like there's somebody that loves me who is doesn't know me kind of thing. Hopefully that can right. be a support to them. As on their road to recovery. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's a, I appreciate the advice. Um, 
you know, we've got a few couple more minutes here. Um, are there any other stories of thinking about um, one of your corporate clients as, as you've maybe helped them make some decisions about how the company is going to give back that you were really impressed with with the vision of a leader or the direction of, of a, one of your corporate clients that you think is, is worth learning from? Sure. So um, recently worked with a client, um, happened to be in the financial services industry, and they had a foundation, great history of giving, supporting, um, supporting the local community. But the program, uh, as it, when, they, when they approached me, uh, was, was instead of it being um, a great program that everyone in the, um, in the bank was really proud of, it was taking so much time to make decisions, and some of the decisions, some of the organizations they were funding had received funding for so long that it became expected, and and um, they really felt like the program wasn't working. Mm. And instead of being a really positive program, it was uh, it was just causing challenges throughout the organization, and. Um, and so I worked with the senior team to come up with uh, ways to incorporate things that they care about as an organization into their giving and really develop a much tighter definition of organizations or the types of um, areas, their areas of funding interest, being really clear about it so that organizations that don't qualify aren't going to submit uh, requests and um, and ultimately, we came up with a program that has different areas of giving that enables um, the bank to really take a leadership stand on areas, uh, activities that are going on in the community or areas, for example, might be the veterans issues or opiate crisis or childhood obesity, um, that, that the organization could um, really dedicate a large uh, chunk of their foundation giving to and have an impact for a year or two and, uh, and really be able to talk about it in a meaningful way to the community and internally. And uh, I was impressed with the organization for being forward thinking about uh, taking that leadership position, but also, um, you know, their, their willingness to be a little bit innovative in their approach. You know, it's interesting how from the outside, that might feel obvious or something, but when you're in the organization, there's, you know, the, the ruts, <laughs> the ruts of how we've always done it can be very deep. And there's the kind of, if it ain't broke kind of mentality a lot of times. And the, you know, especially if it's not an issue that the shareholders are demanding, right. Then there's, That's right. man, you know, it's not really, it's not really that broken now. And, and I have all these other to do's on the list and, uh, you know, breaking up, breaking up the way it's always been done. You know, humans don't necessarily love change sometimes. That's right. That's right. And, but, you know, in this case, it was, it got to a point where it was sort of at a breaking point and, um, it was eating up so much management time and, and just had sort of so many negative associations that, uh, it was that point of pain, I think that, uh, you know, unfortunately oftentimes is what drives action. Finally took the bull by the horns, huh? That's right. Well, this is great. We really appreciate the time you've given us today. Um, any parting advice that you feel like, you know, is is kind of the 
advice you live your life by or things that you, you know, things that you would tell innovators has been what's worked for you or just anything you want to give a shout out to the listeners on? Uh, well, I would say the most important thing that I try to do every day is remember that uh, we all have a choice about how we how we decide to uh, approach our day and the perspective, the, you know, the, the lens, if you will, of what, how we look at the world. And to remember that we all have a choice. And we're not always, we don't always have a choice of the things that come at us, but we always have a choice of how we react and respond to, the, to those, those inputs. And, um, and, you know, if you have bad medical news or family news or really challenging professional situations, um, uh, you know, it's not always easy to remember that we all have a choice about how we react to those. And, um, and I, you know, I, I think it's really important to remember that um, we're, even when there are those, those challenging moments, um, we still have some control. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks again for making time, and uh, we'll have to talk again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.